Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. If you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. A year after Michael Jackson's death, his legacy remains a complicated one. But one thing we know for sure, Thriller will forever be a landmark album. We'll talk to writer Nelson George about the making of that disc. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. Stay tuned for our discussion and a review of the highly anticipated new album by Eminem, Today on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And time now for some music news. Those are the Strokes, and they are one of the headlining bands this year at the Lollapalooza Festival in Grand Park in Chicago. If you want to see them in Chicago, the Strokes, you got to go to Lollapalooza. Otherwise, they're not allowed to play anywhere within 300 miles of Chicago for nine months. That is what is called a radius or exclusivity clause. In recent years, the dominant model in the summer concert industry has shifted from bands getting together two or three at a time or even an entire day, multi-band bill, crossing the country from left to right or vice versa and playing at the outdoor amphitheaters or sheds, to several big destination festivals anchored at different parts of the country, drawing people from throughout that area to come and see as many as 130 bands in a day, one place, one time. I'm thinking of the Coachella Festival in the California desert outside Los Angeles, Bonnaroo in Manchester, Tennessee, and Lollapalooza smack dab in the middle of the city of Chicago. There's some controversy. Rolling Stone did a fascinating piece in its June 10th issue about the local music communities in Nashville, Tennessee, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, beginning to complain about these festivals because of those radius clauses, saying bands who play the festival, who take that big festival payday and the chance to play in front of a record crowd, not being able to come elsewhere and play at theaters or arenas or small clubs in those markets. The difference between Coachella and Bonnaroo, those radius clauses are for several months. Lollapaloozas are the harshest in the industry. Nine months and 300 miles. That would include in the Chicago area, defined as the Chicago area, Madison, Milwaukee, Detroit, Indianapolis. That's taking a huge chunk of the business away from all the small clubs in all of those cities, and especially Chicago. The Illinois Attorney General is investigating antitrust complaints about Lollapalooza 
for those radius clauses. It's making national news. We don't know where that investigation will go, but it's an issue that a lot of music communities across the country are beginning to deal with. Well, there's a couple of things that are interesting to me about this Madigan investigation in Illinois. One is that everybody has these radius clauses, Jim. It's just not Lollapalooza. Even a club will impose a non-compete clause in a contract with a band to play. It's like, listen, if you're going to play our club, you're not going to play any other club in the city, <laughs> you know, within a few months of our, of our date. It's common practice. The question here is how long and how far? Is it a non-compete clause that is truly anti-competitive? And that's what Madigan's going to look into. But I think, you know, if she's going to look into Lollapalooza, she's got to look into all this other stuff that's going on in Illinois as well. There are street festivals here every week that have non-compete clauses. And as you said, nationwide, this is a common industry practice. So will we see the federal government looking into the antitrust implications of that or not? Been dazed and confused for so long, it's not true. Wounded a woman never bargained for you. Lots of people talking, few of them know. Soul of a woman was created below. That is Led Zeppelin with their famous song, Days and Confused. Or is it Led Zeppelin's song? Jake Holmes, a folk singer from the 60s, is now claiming that it is in fact his song. He's now 70 years old. He filed a plagiarism suit seeking $150,000 in damages, or about 90,000 British pounds. He filed it in the U.K. He's saying that he toured with Jimmy Page's then-band, The Yardbirds, in 1967 and performed that song. So Jimmy Page had an opportunity to hear Jake Holmes perform his version of Days and Confused two years before Page recorded it with Led Zeppelin. Now, Jim, you and I know that these kind of lawsuits are a dime a dozen. Yeah. They come through every week. Usually some guy out there saying, I want, I want some money off of this hit. You know, somebody makes a lot of money off of a hit song. Well, and you've got to be kind of suspicious about why it took this guy 40 years to come forward. Indeed, and it does leave a lot of doubt in your mind. Now, wait a minute. Does he really have a claim? Well, we're going to let you be the judge. Listen to Jake Holmes's 1967 version of Dazed and Confused on Sound Opinions. I'm dazed and confused as it stays it go. Am I being choosed? Well, I'd just like to know. Give me a clue as to where I am at. Feel like a mouse and you act like a cat. and confused hanging on by a thread I'm being abused I'd be better off dead I can't stand this tease and I'm starting to crack you're out to get me you're on the right track you're listening to Sound Opinions You're hearing Billie Jean from Michael Jackson's 1982 album, Thriller. It's been a year since Jackson died, and controversy is still swirling around him, even as his estate has made more than a billion dollars off of his name in the last year. But we want to focus on the music here at Sound Opinions. And to help us look at Jackson's music career and landmark album, we turn to author and critic Nelson George. We spoke with George last year about his memoir, and now he's back with a new book on Jackson and Thriller. Nelson, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. And we're happy to have you on again to talk about your new book, Thriller, The Musical Life of Michael Jackson. One-year anniversary of Jackson's death, of course. And your book sort of takes us through the musical life of Jackson, his career, but it, the focus is, is on Thriller. And I'm, I'm struck by the characterization of Thriller as the, the, the Citizen Kane of music with Michael Jackson in the Orson Welles role. Talk about that a little bit. 
Well, you know, he was 25 when Thriller came out. He was already, obviously, had a, a childhood star, had been a star for a long time. Off the Wall had been a tremendous success. But this record's success was so outsized and its achievement was so outsized of anything that had been done in terms of sales, certainly, and in terms of visibility, that it became almost the unmatchable... It did become the unmatchable goal, and everything he did after that was, you know, determined as I did being bigger, larger. I mean, getting Scorsese to do the bad video. You know, shooting videos in Romania with entire armies. Um, <laughs> some of the promotional things that he, he did, uh, crowning himself the king of pop. These are all, you know, post-thriller attempts to continue this sense of bigness, largeness, that really can be, be matched. And, you know, to, to a great degree, he was haunted by Thriller. And I think that, Kane, you know, obviously, uh, Wells' career was haunted by Kane. You make, you make the point, Nelson, that not only could Jackson not top Thriller... But nobody else will ever have a record that big again, given the way the industry has changed. You know, you look at our era now, we have, uh, uh, you know, Beyonce, you have Lady Gaga, who's becoming a global star, um, have any number of, of rappers, Jay-Z in particular, Kanye, Eminem, who become really major stars. But none of them are ever going to sell, you know, 25, 30, 40 million records. No one will ever sell that again. And Maybe there'll be a star who's actually as big as Michael, but how do we, as a recording artist, but how do we quantify that without, you know, there's no way to compare vinyl and CD and cassettes of 1984 through now with, you know, someone coming in the scene now is going to sell a download, and a download's not an album. It's a different kind of computation we almost have to do to quantify success. And certainly Michael's record, Thriller, you know, it's a, it's a document of a, of a way of making music and a way of marketing music that is from another century, literally. It's a delicate balancing act, I think, and you get at that point very well in the book. You describe it as a both a calculated commercial product and a projection of a singular, cartoony, passionate, odd, dreamy, anxious individual enabled by a crew of skilled artists and craftsmen. It really does sound like he had one opportunity to get that balance exactly right, and for the rest of his career, he got it wrong. But for Thriller, all those elements came together. Well, you know, want to be starting something, beat it, Billie Jean. You know, those are the, the anchor records of that thing. And they're all, when you really think about the records, they're very different and odd records in a lot of ways, particularly the lyrics to, you know, Billie Jean and want to be starting something. There's a lot of stuff going on in there about paranoia, about... Um, this theme of being observed, of being resentful, of being observed, of, you know, plots being hatched against him. Mm-hmm. You know, one of these starting something is all about people trying to eat you like, you know, I'm like a vegetable. That idea that he's being attacked on some level or observed too closely becomes one of the major themes of his music and to a great degree of his life. So it's, it's, that was a very personal record. I mean, we think of these as ubiquitous songs, but they were what they're talking about is things very close to his heart that would become, in some ways, sadly, the themes of the last 25 years of his life. It's difficult, too, to pull that off when you talk about these very personal things and yet make something universal and, and commercially acceptable out of them. Obviously, he attempted to do that again and again in his career without nearly the level of success. I mean, can you sort of identify what it was about that period where he was able to create universal music out of this incredibly personal subject matter? You know, 25, you're at the turning point between, you know, you. I think you're really becoming a full adult by your mid-20s. You know, in your early 20s, you're still figuring it out. And I think that in a sense that we always, everyone remarks about was Michael, was very much, a, 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 we, we still looked at him as a joyous individual. We mm-hmm. still looked at him as a, per, a, a source of a pleasure, in, in a sense. When you get back to songs that go later on, Smooth Criminal, which is kind of the same, thematically in that same ballpark, and then, you, you know, Leave Me Alone, which comes much later, where he's really beleaguered. You know, Leave Me Alone, the hook is from a Jackie Wilson song, Stop Dogging Me Around. There's nothing accessible about that. That feels like a guy who's very angry. Choice that we made. 
it's off-putting, even the music is well-made. It sounds very off-putting in a way that Billie Jean and Wanna Be Starting Something didn't feel. I mean, at the end of the day, You Wanna Be Starting Something is actually a joyous record. I mean, it ends with this incredible African chant, and there's a kind of, when you see people dance to it at a club, it's the most celebratory record. So he was able, that record in particular takes his journey from kind of paranoia to kind of a celebration of self within that. And he, that was such a unique balancing act. And he wasn't really able to completely pull that off ever again. I mean, maybe, and maybe that's it. Maybe you do it, maybe you make, you know, for any artist, maybe you get it right one time and then you continue working off those themes the rest of your career. That's an interesting observation, Nelson. There, there's something universal about the record that touches every adolescent in particular. Yeah. Because, I mean, every adolescent feels paranoid and at the same time thinks that they're, you know, king or queen of the universe. And, and later, Jackson keeps comparing himself to Christ on this last couple of albums and You're Crucifying Me. That incredible statue on the cover of history that was based right. on the giant statue of <laughs> Stalin. It's like, nobody's relating to that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you said that thing about the, uh, the sort of adolescent appeal. I talk a little bit in the, in the beginning of the book about this 18-year-old boy Black boy who who's really after who's obsessed with you know after Michael's death about getting um you know, getting a Jerry curl, and as I've been doing interviews for the book over the last week, that stories like that have come up more and more. Kids who are in their single digits last last year got it turned on to Michael Jackson. There were marathon music videos, marathon you know playing mixes of his music, and kids. I mean like three year old kids, mm-hmm. eight year old kids. Are gravi- gravitate to the red jacket, they gravitate to the sparkling glove, they gravitate to the sparkling socks. And I think that, that speaks to there's something that's intangible about, particularly that era of Michael, that, that really even gets kids, hooks them, you know, three videos in, they're doing a thriller dance. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I saw that in my own house, uh, Nelson. I've got two teenage daughters now, but when they were in their single digits, they both discovered Michael Jackson. And I actually watched my oldest daughter getting the thriller dance, putting it in slow motion on the video huh. so that she could learn. She was dissecting the dance moves so that she could learn them expertly herself and then teach it to the rest of the neighborhood. They saw the dance in a movie. Apparently it was appropriated in, in some Hollywood movie in the 90s, and then she, she got fascinated by Michael Jackson, and it led to this entire fascination with, with Jackson. And he is huh. that still that iconic artist for like the third or fourth generation beyond him. Well, he's the artist that transcends time, Greg. I mean, I saw the same thing when Elvis was on the soundtrack of Lilo and Stitch, that Disney cartoon movie. My daughter thought he was current. And and that Elvis-Jackson comparison is overplayed, but it's not as if Jackson has gone from the scene for young fans discovering him. He's very much alive. One thing, I talk in this section about uh, Thriller, about this girl out out of Canada, Who's, who's sort of like your daughter, got fascinated with the video, learned to dance, and now there's this thing, it's called Thrill the World. And mm-hmm. every year, even way before Michael's death, they've been doing it for like four, three or four years, groups of people gather around the globe to dance the Thriller dance at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you can go online and see videos from Brisbane, from Scotland, from Texas, from, you know, Japan. Um, I mean, Michael Peters, who we should, we should mention here, Late, great choreographer. He's the one who choreographed Beat It. He th- created the Thriller dance. He did Love at the Battlefield for uh, Pat Benatar. He died of AIDS uh, in the 80s, but he was, you know, he created that dance along with Michael. And arguably, the Thriller dance is the biggest social dance yeah. maybe in the globe now in terms of you can almost travel anywhere in the world. I mean, Bollywood movies have been biting the Thriller dance for <laughs> yeah, years, yeah. you know. It's just an amazing thing that, and and that goes back to, I think, our original point was, is Lady Gaga going to create a dance or video that's going to be that? Maybe she is, but it's going to be a different, I I mean, it's going to be hard for her to do that, for her to recreate, because she's going for that. Obviously, Lady Gaga is a good example of an artist of this era who really wants to be a global pop star. Mm -hmm. But the challenge is how do you, the standard is like creating imagery and dances that transcend the globe and it can last for generations and that's a hell of a <laughs> standard to go for We're going to continue our discussion about Michael Jackson's thriller with Nelson George coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX and later, Jim and I review new albums by rapper Eminem and Montreal indie rockers Wolf Parade. I 
Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with Greg Cott, and that, of course, is the title track from Michael Jackson's Thriller. Our guest this week, author and critic Nelson George, is taking us through the legacy of this historic album a year after Jackson's death. Now, Jackson's vision not only impacted the way albums were sold, but how artists were perceived by the general public. Nelson, you talk about this in the book, Michael Jackson and the Issue of Race. Can you expand on that a bit? Well, I mean, you know, we take for granted... That now, you know, in the 21st century, the pop landscape is dotted with these uh, massive African-American pop icons, and everyone takes it for granted that we watch Oprah. But you go back to the early 80s, when Thriller breaks through, there's still a lot of segregation in pop culture. You know, there's AOR radio, which plays basically album-oriented rock, which is kind of, you know, they maybe play a couple of Hendrix tracks, not much else. And there's a lot of apartheid, even in, in how, obviously MTV is a good example of that. After Thriller, it seemed like everyone, at least on a pop level, you saw, obviously, Purple Rain's the next year. You know, Eddie Murphy's probably, Eddie Murphy's the only person who's kind of appeared, Michael, in terms of that breakthrough, but, but Oprah comes on after, you know, Thriller. She becomes mm-hmm. big after Thriller. The Cosby Show's after Thriller. Brian Gumbel's on Today Show. I mean, things that we don't remember as much now, but were very significant at the time. Mm-hmm. Did so much of this kind of sense of pop. Um, Lionel Richie's career and his sort of ubiquity that went on in the mid-'80s post-Michael. I mean, the idea of black pop culture, this ubiquity of all of this stuff that we take for granted now, it's, most of it is post-Michael, and I, I believe, honestly, that that record set a... It opened the doors, it opened the eyes of a lot of Americans average Americans. It opened the eyes to a lot of marketers. Are you thinking, Nelson, that the, the child star from Gary, Indiana had some small role in the uh, the law professor from Chicago and state senator uh, winding up in the White House? You know, I go back and forth about that one because I hate when people make claims for this made that happen 20 years later or right. 30 years later. Right. I don't necessarily want to say for sure because I'm, I'm, I, I think there's a lot that went on with that, with Mr. Obama's rise. But certainly... The idea that a black figure could be a universally beloved figure in a way that it hadn't happened before, be ubiquitous in the households of America, definitely that plays some role, that, that, that process of normalization, if you will. Mm. I've been traveling a lot around the globe the last few years. I was just in China like two weeks ago. And in Beijing, the only two images of African Americans I saw in any of the pop culture. I saw a poster of President Obama dressed as Chairman Mao, which was pretty hilarious. Wow. <laughs> wow. Called Obama Mao. <laughs> that was crazy. I hope you brought one back. <laughs> and I'm going to get a bunch sent to me because <laughs> everyone wants a copy. And then the other thing was I saw Michael Jackson. And I saw Michael Jackson in, in, in a few posters and postcards of him. And I think what's interesting about the image of Michael, especially when I've even seen this in, in Madrid, I've seen this in, in Barcelona uh, and other places in Europe, the Michael that they tend to gravitate to is sort of the Michael between, around bad, mm-hmm. the bad era Michael, you know, who's very, who's already sort of becoming very light. Mm-hmm. Whereas in America, our vision of Michael tends to be a browner, you know, this journey. We, we, ha- we have in our mind all of these different Michaels. Whereas when you go to international audiences, they tend to see the post-thriller Michael as Michael. And I think that, I think that that can't be discounted as part of his appeal, and that the sense is that he is this uh, figure who, whose racial identity for a lot of the globe is more ambiguous than we take him here in the States. And I think the fact that it's sort of a mystery where he stands has helped him translate to places like China, to places like India, and other places that might be more xenophobic or be less likely to embrace you know, a straight brown black man. And more importantly, when you look at the Obama, making that Obama analogy, Obama himself is, is, a, is a hybrid person. Mm. And I think there's some case to be made that Michael's evolving face helped him leap some barriers that might have been there in other cultures. Mm-hmm. You, you also make the point that this was a calculated effort in a lot of ways. I mean, he did want to be the biggest pop star in the world, and he found Quincy Jones to help him do it. 
they talked about this whole idea of crossing over, this whole idea of creating. In a lot of ways, Nelson, that record clearly set the template for the for the blockbuster era that that would follow uh, yeah. for the next twenty years. I mean, the CD era of the, those ten, twelve million selling records, which Absolutely. we are no longer in. But the uh, the idea of creating a track or a song for a particular radio format, you know, because already mm. radio is stratifying at that point, and and finding these different ways to hit these different genres. And yet they made this record in only a few months, really. It was very fast. I mean, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that you see in Michael's career is that as he, at that time, you know, he and Quincy, they'd done Off the Wall, so they, at that point, Michael was more the apprentice, even though he'd been in studios a long time, to become a solo artist. Quincy, you know, brought in his favorites. He got Paul McCartney to give him a song. He got Stevie to give him a song. You know, Off the Wall is such a very well put together A&R'd album. And the same thing could be said of Thriller, because outside of those, you know, three big songs, most of the album is written by you know, a combination of different songwriters. Mm-hmm. I think Human Nature is a really interesting song in this context because it's a song that everyone is it's so identified with Michael and it so captures a kind of innocent vision of Michael. And yet it was written by two LA pros. Yeah. John Bettis was like a tip was a really hot LA songwriter, a lyricist. He'd rewritten songs to the point of sisters and so on. The actual melody came from one of the dudes in, in Toto who played a big role in, in the Thriller album. Mm-hmm. And Quincy kind of heard the melody, gave it to Bettis to write the lyric, and sort of created this song to fit the persona of Michael. This town is just an And I think so much of the album is very calculated that way. I mean, the story behind Beat It, which I think is probably the crucial record on the album in a lot of ways, you know, is, is and it's really funny because Quincy hears uh, My Sharona. Now, that's not the rock song that I would have thought would have inspired <laughs> a great uh, cover, but for some reason, he, he saw that as a big pop rock record. And he said, how can I give Michael a record like that? And, you know, at that time, in my, I don't think Quincy had ever produced anything that even was vaguely rock and roll on any of the stuff that he'd done before that. And Michael really hadn't uh, gone that way either, so it was a really virgin territory. For the reasons that you spoke about, the, the segregation in terms of what, what rock radio was or what R&B radio was, what pop radio was, you know, people like Rick James uh, and others had been frustrated. Even Prince at that point was not getting a lot of exposure mm-hmm. on mainstream rock radio. The NEW FMs of the world, big stations in New York were not playing Prince. So to make that record and to get, you know, crucially to get Eddie Van Halen to come in and do those, that solo, I think is I think Eddie Van Halen's participation in that record is humongous. Yeah. Because it allows the record to get played in places it wouldn't have been otherwise, and expose Michael to a, an audience even wider than the sort of dance or, audience that he already had. So, Beat It is, I think, the record that, that it's the calculated record that actually worked. It's a great point because I think at the time the perception of R&B was that it was going soft, and you amplify that in the book, that you know, it was ballad-heavy territory. A lot of white listeners didn't have a lot of connection with it. Suddenly you introduce Eddie Van Halen into the mix, and suddenly you got the... I mean, people don't realize maybe, but at the time, Van Halen was about as big a rock band as there was in the world. And what's interesting to me, Nelson, is that you draw the connection not only backward uh, with Beat It in terms of reconnecting black pop to rock and roll... 
but then push it forward and, and talk about its influence as a major turning point for music, incorporating those rock guitars into sort of a, a more of a black element in music. One of the people who's really been silent in the aftermath of Michael's death is Prince. I, I don't, maybe you guys, I've never seen him, I don't, haven't heard any yeah. no, it's true. statement of any kind about his thoughts about it or Michael's legacy or any of that. But certainly, I have to believe that Beat It makes Warner Brothers records and Mo Austin and all those people at Warner Brothers go, you know something? We, we got to try again with Prince. We've had several platinum albums, but we haven't been able to make the big leap. After Beat It, Purple Rain, you know, Purple Rain, the, 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 you know, which becomes an anthem like the Led Zeppelin of the 80s, you know, it's like yeah. the Stairway to Heaven. It may be possible, but it's not nearly as easy if Beat It doesn't happen first. Prince was a was a was a versatile, but certainly of all things, he was a great rock guitarist, and he was able to with that movie and with that album to make a leap. He, I think, he'd been selling like a platinum, platinum plus for like two or three of his albums, and that sold like, like I think nine or ten million records. It was a huge yeah. success, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think he ever sold that many records again. Actually, you know, it was like one of those things. He came in the wake directly of of, of uh, Michael's success. I think that. And, you know, when you look at the Black Rock Coalition and that whole movement that eventually spawned Living Color and a lot of other great bands, I think that Beat It emboldens them to try again and penetrate these walls that were up. So it's one of those weird, you know, those insane records that really um, rippled throughout the culture in ways that were unexpected. We're talking to Nelson George, the author of Thriller, The Musical Life of Michael Jackson. Nelson, in the book you make the point, too, that, and we have to address this when we're talking about the, the Thriller era, is the visual side of it. Um, mm. You know, the absolute impact that those videos had. You know, even the title track, I think you sort of poo-poo it musically. You're, you're not that impressed with it as a piece of music, neither am I for that matter. But you, you mentioned the, the Michael Peters choreography, right. the John Landis video. That turned this into what you call Michael's most perfect pop product. And I think a lot of people, are so, when they think about that album, they probably think about those videos in tandem with that album. Now... When we talk about how calculated this record was, and obviously MTV was still in its infancy, becoming more powerful by the year, how much of that was in part of the process of making those songs? Like, oh, we can turn this into a great video. Well, you know, the, the, the Thriller was originally called a song called Starlight, and it was something Rod Tepperton had been working on. And this is interesting because Michael is not a, really a writer on that song, but obviously it's Michael's vision that drives that song because he's a kid who loves horror movies. He's a kid who's a fantasy kid. He wants to make a, put makeup on and dress up and play characters. And uh, so the song is, while not written by Michael, is definitely an expression of some part of him crafted that way. And there's no doubt when they put Fenton Price in to do that whole kind of campy rap thing they do, they're thinking about a video. I mean, because everything about it seems very cinematic. Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize your neighborhood. And, you know, that's why I say the record is more like a a soundtrack record than it is a record to me. I guess you could sit at home and listen to Thriller without the video, but really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. You know, it really exists as this thing, and you know, and and also Landis. You know, Landis is another guy who, at that time, was one of the top directors in Hollywood. I mean, American Werewolf in London was a really this mix of horror and comedy that that sort of a, happens a lot now, and you know, in, in zombie movies of every kind. American Werewolf in London really, really made that a mainstream idea. It was a very, in, in its way, a, a very innovative film for Hollywood at that period. So, I mean, I think that you're right. I think that that song. Is, is much about 
a platform for a visual experience as it is an audio experience. I mean, oh, the other thing that we should mention about the Thriller video, it was one of the first, if not the first, video that was sold. Landis George Foley, who was the producer and editor on it, went to Vestron, I believe, video. And the deal was essentially that they would create... They, they created a documentary footage, you know, around it of the making of the video. Mm -hmm. You saw Michael in makeup, and you saw Landis and Foley talking about the creation of the record. And I think it was about a half hour between the video itself and the additional content. It was about a half hour worth of time. Okay. It might have sold for 13 bucks or more. And as far as I remember, that's the first time that, like, a visual package like that was yeah. for sale. Yeah, the birth of video as product and not just promo tool. The record was an artistic... Uh, achievement. It was a commercial achievement, and it, it became, in many ways, this, a cutting-edge marketing experiment that ended up influencing a lot of different ways that things are sold. At least, in you know, for that era. I mean, what went on with Thriller probably resonated through the culture for twenty years in terms of how people visualized selling music, and and really, uh, it was it was the Napster that really ended that era. So yeah. I mean, the end of the twentieth century, a lot of what goes on in the music business is is, is a result of Thriller. We've been talking with our colleague Nelson George, author of Thriller, The Musical Life of Michael Jackson. Nelson, thanks so much for coming on Sound Opinions again. Thank you guys so much for having me. Now we turn it over to you, the listener. Leave your sound opinions on our hotline, 888-859-1800, and we'll put them on the air. You can also email interact at soundopinions.org or talk to us on Facebook and Twitter. We'll be back after a short break with reviews of the new records by Eminem and Wolf Parade. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. That, of course, is rapper Eminem delivering his rhymes to a song called Love the Way You Lie, which was the number one digital download and number one single last week, Greg. Eminem is doing big business on his sixth major label album. He's debuting at number one on the pop charts with that record. Biggest sales for any record since 2008, 741,000 copies. Wow. In the old days of NSYNC and stuff, it would be one and a half million. But now, in the new digital download age, 741,000 albums in a week is as good as it gets. We all know who Eminem is, right? Exploded out of Detroit on a series of mixtapes. 
discovered by Dr. Dre, who produced him, the bad boy boogeyman of hip-hop, <laughs> snotty, obnoxious, homophobic, misogynist, foul-mouthed, also a brilliant rapper, capable of the most complicated rhymes delivered at double and triple speed of anybody else. Has had a hard time the last couple of albums. Yeah. We last heard from him on a record called Relapse in 2009, which was partly about him falling back into drug abuse. He's done some stints in rehab. He's gone through divorces and remarriages. He's become a tabloid punchline in some ways. Now comes, in place of what was supposed to have been Relapse 2, a sequel to that last record, a new album called Recovery. As I said, it's doing huge business. We're going to get into the art of it in a minute when we give our opinions and rate it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. But let us first hear another song. This is called Going Through Changes. It might take you a second to recognize where the main melody comes from. It's a classic Black Sabbath tune mm. called Changes. Here's Eminem on Sound Opinions. I'm rolling for Kelp like Philly. Feel like I'm losing control of myself. I sincerely apologize if all that I sound like is I'm complaining. But life keeps on complicating. And I'm debating on leaving this world this evening. Even my girls can see I'm grieving. I try and hide it, but I can't. Why do I act like I'm all high and mighty when inside I'm dying? I'm finally realizing I need help. Can't do it myself. Too weak, too weak. Stopping, having ups and downs. Going through peaks and valleys. Dilly dallying round with the idea of winning right here i'm hating my reflection i walk around the house trying to fight mares i can't stand what i look like yeah i look fat but what do i care i give a only thing i fear is Haley. i'm afraid if i close my eyes then i might see her In the bedroom, bathroom, napping at noon Yeah, dad's in a bad mood, he's always snapping at you Marshall, what happened at you? Can't stop with these Then you're falling off with your skills and your own fans are laughing at you It become a problem, you're too Your tackle, get up, be a man, stand A real man would have had it handled No, you just had your heart ripped out and crushed They say proof just flipped out, homie just whipped out and bust Nah, it ain't like duty to do that He wouldn't shoot at nobody He fight first, but dwelling on it only makes the night worse Now I'm popping And they go do whatever I says when I says it It's in the best interest to protect their investment And I just lost my best friend So what I guess then Eminem with a song called Going Through Changes From his latest album, Recovery A huge hit at age 37, he is once again back at the top of the charts, one of the biggest pop phenomenons of the last decade. 37 years old, not an easy thing to do for a hip-hop artist to remain relevant at that age, and Eminem is proving everyone wrong by doing so. Eminem will be the first one to tell you that his last few albums have not been very good. He admits as much on this record. In a song, Talking to Myself, he basically disses encore and relapse his last two records. Yeah, um, the exact line is them last two albums didn't count. Right. You know, I wish he'd told us back then before people had, had bought them. The problem being, you know, he's gone through some major drug abuse issues. A close friend of his, a Detroit MC named Proof, was killed a few years ago sunk him into a deep depression, started abusing painkillers. He says he hasn't been himself. On this record, he's tunneling his way out. This is the side of Eminem that an older audience can perhaps appreciate. The, the slim, shady, the mischievous character that he sometimes plays on his record, the misogynist, the homophobe, he's less in evidence on this record. This is Eminem's emo side. This is where he <laughs> wears his emotions on his sleeve, oh. and he will tell you what he's going through in his private life and the struggles he's been going through. 
The problem on this record is not so much Eminem. I, I actually think his skills as an MC are still very high. He is a master of internal rhymes, of twisting an inventive phrase. No one really does it better than him. When he puts his mind to it, he can really write a great rhyme. But I think the beats are incredibly ponderous on mm-hmm. this record. And at the same time, the inward-looking, fame is killing me, drugs are killing me, I'm not a happy individual, and that song changes. He's basically talking about a self-loathing recluse. We get a lot of songs like this on this particular record. It's a tough listen. 77 yeah. minutes of this yeah. kind of inward-looking stuff over these slow beats. It's better certainly, than his last few records. But I'm going to give it a burn it because I do appreciate the fact that he is at least trying to tell us something about his life. Greg, telling us something about his life, he does it in the terms of a lifetime TV movie. Mm. It's solipsistic and self-serving. Compare it to another self-examining hip-hop record we just reviewed, Drake's Thank Me Later, infinitely better musically and substantively in terms of the lyrics. Yes, it's a joy to listen to Eminem turn that tongue upside down, inside out, and all around, okay? But when he's still taking pot shots at way out-of-date pop culture yeah, figures, that's you know, true. twice he insults Michael J. Fox, and he's dropping names like uh, Michael Vick and David Carradine. It's like, Mariah what? Carey, too. Ma- Mariah Carey, he's still obsessed with her. And musically, it's a very disappointing album. I mean, another key track besides the Sabbath sample comes from Hathaway's What Is Love, mm-hmm. which is that stupid song that the guys on Saturday Night Live who spoof the uh, Euro trash uh, right. dance guys do. You know, come on. Buy it, burn it, trash it is our scale. This is a trash it record from Eminem. Baby, walk me through an awful dream Riding traffic's by the sea Just up from a father's place Cutting through an empty space With trash return to go That's Palm Road from Wolf Parade. Their new album is called Expo 86. Wolf Parade, a band out of Montreal, initially signed to Sub Pop by a pretty high-profile talent scout. A guy by the name of Isaac Brock of Modest Mouse was doing some uh, freelance A&Ring for Sub Pop a number of years ago when he signed this band to the label. And he also produced their 2005 debut, Apologies to the Queen Mary. That put the band on the map in a big way in the independent rock scene in North America. And it came among a wave of Canadian bands during that era. I remember the mid-aughts. We had (laughs) Arcade Fire. We had Stars. We had Broken Social Scene. We had Metric. We had Feist. We had New Pornographers. This wave of Canadian bands uh, assaulting the charts. You know, actually, a lot of good records came out of that period. And uh, Wolf Parade was among those bands. So they got noticed pretty quickly. Second album came out in June of 2008 at Mount Zoomer. And meanwhile, the two main songwriters in the band started flourishing as well as solo artists. Dan Beckner was in a band called, or is in a band, called Handsome Furs with his wife, Alexi Perry, and they had quite a bit of success last year. Saw them at the South by Southwest Music Festival. They were one of the top bands at that festival. And his partner in Wolf Parade, Spencer Krug, is in a band called Sunset Rubdown, as well as Frog Eyes and Swan Lake, and they have all been enjoying individual success. Now Krug and Beckner are back together with Wolf Parade for album number three. Let's take a listen to a track from Expo 86 before we review it. It's called Cave Osapien on Sound Opinions. Oh, <laughs> 
That is Cave O Sapien by Wolf Parade on Sound Opinions. Greg, I gotta confess, this was one of those uh, bands you were championing that I just wasn't getting. Not only you, but a lot of critics kept saying, these guys are updating for the new millennium that kind of classic new wave era art rock invention of a Peter Gabriel, a David Bowie, in terms of uh, what they were doing rhythmically and with the songwriting. I heard a lot of lo-fi clatter obscuring that until this album. I think they've taken a major leap forward. At the same time that it's kind of darker than anything they've done before, lots of waves of heavily altered guitars and and those analog synthesizers Mm. I love, very Brian Eno. There's a step forward with the songwriting. There's a concision. Beckner's been talking about how they really tried to focus. The melodies are better than ever. They merge better with those off-kilter rhythms. I'm loving this record. It is absolutely a buy-it disc. Well, Jim, I have to disagree with you uh, on that completely. As a Wolf Parade fan, I I found myself let down by this record. One of the things I enjoyed the most about the band was the contrast in the styles between Beckner and Krug. Beckner was kind of the hyper-intense, in-your-face guy, whereas Krug was sort of hanging out in this more abstract, arty, wordier terrain. But now I see the two songwriting styles starting to merge a little bit more, and they're starting to blend out. They're finding a middle ground, and through that compromise, they don't sound quite as exciting. The dynamic contrasts aren't there. You know, there's nothing wrong with this record, per se. I see them as kind of a well-oiled rock machine now. They've discovered, okay, this is what we do. We're Wolf Parade. We kind of have become a band in a good sense. But at the same time, I think a lot of the excitement has gone out of this record. It lacks those emotional peaks. I think the song we just played, Cave Sapien, is by far, for me, the most exciting song in the record. I wish there were more peaks like that. I'm going to have to give it a burn now buy it from me, a burn it from you. There is just no way you're going to ever agree with me. <laughs> what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to take a look at a quintessential American art form, the Rock Fan's Guide to Country Music. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, who wants to be starting something, and Jason Saldana, Billie Jean is not his lover. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, is Tori Southside Malatia, the man in the mirror, as we like to think of him. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Bart from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was just listening to the podcast uh, with JP and Chrissy Hind and the Fairground Boys, and I have a feeling that this little thing, I'm kind of glad that Chrissy's about to put this behind her, because what a wonderful time they must have had together, but what a awful vocal blend they produced. The two voices that just don't match at all. I'm really glad that she had her dalliance with a, a younger guy. It sounds very, very exciting. I, if I were him, I'd, I'd do the exact same thing, just so I could write a record about it. But anyway, I'm hoping he uh, goes off on his own, and I'm hoping she gets back to what she does best, which has always been with the Pretenders. Anyway, I love the show, you guys. Thanks. Hi, this is uh, Tom from Lionel Lakes, Minnesota. Just got done listening to your latest podcast on Guilty Pleasures. Really enjoyed the show, especially since three of your guilty pleasures would probably have been mine, too. I really love the reference to the Moody Blues. I still have that poem stuck in my head after all these years. I am a huge fan of Ted Nugent, even though Ted's, a, like you said, a caricature of himself now. He's still the goofiest but most fun guy in rock and roll. But the one I really wanted to talk about was your reference to Sweet. I had uh, Sweet was one of the first LPs that I owned. I had the old Sweet Give Us a Wink LP. When you pulled the sleeve out, there was a hole cut in the top, and it looked like the album was winking at you as you pulled the record out. I still remember that after all these years. Still a big fan of Ballroom Blitz. Thanks for the show, guys. Love the show. Bye.
John Paul up in Albany, New York. I really enjoyed both the Vocoder and Guilty Pleasure shows. I have a big collection with plenty of Guilty Pleasures that go along with it, but when nobody's looking, I'll play all the way through Gritty Politi's Cupid and Psyche 85 record. It's 38 minutes of pure, meaningless, big and loud synth pop, and for me, it's almost like downing a bottle of cheap champagne. I love it, and if I need a small quick dose, then I'll just play my favorite track off of that, which is Absolute. I'm so embarrassed, but it's nice to know I'm not alone. Love the show. You guys are doing a great job. Take care. Um, my name is Jasmine from Chicago, and I had to laugh when I was listening to your show on guilty pleasures. Um, my guilty pleasure has kind of been a guilty pleasure since it was new. Um, I mostly listen to metal, industrial, and punk and have since high school, but the one music that always makes me smile is 80s hip-hop. And I got flack for it back then. I still get flack for it. But the two songs that are absolutely guaranteed to make me turn up the stereo, dance around like an idiot, and belt the lyrics at the top of my lungs are The Cars That Go Boom by La Trim and The Humpty Dance by Digital Underground. And I really try not to do it when anybody else is around, but you know what? It makes me happy. <laughs> Embarrassed, but happy. And that's all I wanted to say. Thanks for a great show, guys. Allow me to amaze thee They say I'm ugly but it just don't faze me I'm still getting in the girls' pants And I even got my own dance The Humpty Dance is your chance to do the hump Come on, do it, baby uh, I'll do the Humpty Hump Come on, I'll do the Humpty Hump Check me out, John i do the Humpty Hump Just watch me do the Humpty Hump No more messages to share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.